Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the Division G podcast series. Launched in 2014 by the AERA Graduate Student Executive Committee, these podcasts and now webinars provide an added medium to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and start a conversation among DivG members and the greater community. This year, we have launched our first webinar series, which will become podcasts leading up to the annual Spring Conference in San Antonio, Texas. For an archive of our podcasts, please visit aeradivg.wordpress.com. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group, AERA Division G Students, Social Context in Education, and follow us on Twitter at AERA DivG. So thank you for joining us. Um, we are happy to be your host this morning. My name is Shana Sanchez, and I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of California in Los Angeles. My name is Adam Musser, and I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of California, Davis, although I haven't always been in the UC system, so shout out to my family at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <laughs> so for our first webinar of 2017, we are joined by Dr. Pauline Lipman from the University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Dolores Delgado Bernal from the University of Utah, and Dr. Danielle Solorsano from the University of, of California, Los Angeles. And today they will be sharing with us their stories of resistance in their research, careers, and activism. And we're gonna begin by asking our guests a few questions, then open it up to our audience. If you have a question, please type it in the chat box by clicking on the little chat icon at the bottom of the screen to open it up. We'll read your questions in the end and we'll try to get through as many as we can. I'm gonna turn it over to Adam now to start us off with our questions. Thank you, Shana. I'd also like to welcome our participating scholars, and if we can just hear your voices for the first time, ask you to introduce yourself and your institution and your area of scholarship, and if you would, maybe offer a word about what today's holiday and the legacy of Dr. King means for your work. Dr. Delgado Bernal, we'll start with you. Good morning. Um, thank you, Division G, for um, coordinating this. This is exciting. This is my first webinar. Um, I am um, at the University of Utah, but I'm actually at a visiting um, uh, position at Cal State Los Angeles right now. And um, I think right now we have to think a lot about this legacy of Martin Luther King because of where we're at in um, post-election, the inauguration about to happen. And so I think the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King is all the more important. This morning I was... Um, going through and I was looking at um, some of the speakers that were in Washington DC on the mall this morning and um, former Ohio um, State Senator Nina um, Turner said we must accept um, we, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope and so I think that's part of that legacy right now is when people are feeling um, lost and no hope, um, we have to look for that in order to, to move forward. Thank you. Um, for the rest of our time here, uh, we'll have a conversation. So professors, please jump in and talk to one another. Don't wait for me to call on you. I'm not gonna do that. Uh, Professor Lippman, why don't you go ahead. Good morning, everyone, um, and thank you also to Division G for organizing this. This is also my first webinar, so it's very exciting. Um, I hope I don't mess up. Um, so um, I um, am a professor of education policy studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, my research focuses on the political economy and the politics of race of urban education. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about um, Dr. King's um, letter um, that he wrote in the Birmingham jail, the letter to Birmingham jail, in which he talks about um, the necessity to disobey, disobey and delegitimize um, unlawful laws, immoral laws. And so what does it mean not to comply, not to legitimate um, a president and a system that um, actually delegitimates our lives? Um, and so I've been thinking about that call and, um, and the need to take 
um, heed and courage from that call as well. And also I think um, Dr. King's important um, speech at Riverside Church a year before he died, when he pointed to the three triplets of racism, materialism, and which he was really talking about capitalism and um, militarism, and he was talking about imperialism. And so those are three along with heteropatriarchy, so that's four <laughs> um, quadruplets um, that, um, that really form the foundation, not just of the Trump administration, but of what this country is actually founded on. And so I think we need to um, um, reread Dr. King's speech, uh, speeches in light of the present moment. Thank you, Thank you. Professor Littman. Dr. Solozano. Yes. Morning, everyone. Um, I'm, and again, thank you for Division G, and I'm also, this is my first webinar as well. Um, I'm a professor at UCLA in the Division of Social Science and Comparative Education, and um, also the director of the Center for Critical Race Studies at UCLA. I, um, you know, when we talk about the legacy of uh, Martin Luther King and what we should be thinking about today, or might be thinking about today, I'm, I'm, and we'll talk about this later, but I'm, I'm concerned about, very concerned about how um, undocumented students uh, are experiencing uh, this past election and will clearly experience um, the policies that emerge from this administration and how they impact their everyday lives. And I've been talking to people, I've been, in, in conversations uh, with, with students and parents, and uh, uh, this is a this is a big issue. How, how people are responding, both on the U.S. side of the border, but also on the Mexican side of the border, the southern border. And so I think that you know, King has, Dr. King has given us sort of tools um, to to push back against what we're experiencing. And I think that's part of his legacy, the the, the tools that he shared with us through his lifetime and beyond. Thank you, professors. I want to now ask you to share um, a personal story. Uh, stories are such an important part of education. For many students, stories are how we learn to read and maybe how we learn to write. And certainly stories become a piece of how we eventually make sense of the world around us. So would you each share a story of resistance from your work um, in education or community research? And Dr. Solorzano, uh, we'll start with you this time. Okay. Um, actually, my story is about, it's it, it, my own story about myself uh, as a young undergraduate. Um, in 1969, I, I transferred from St. Mary's College to Loyola University of Los Angeles. It's now called Loyola Marymount University. And, um, you know, I came in as, a, as an accounting major. I was a business major and trying to find myself at that university. And uh, I remember taking, in 1969 or so, I remember taking a class in race and ethnic relations in the sociology department. And I remember professor um, was talking about um, why, and why minority students, and that was a term that they used at the time, didn't, uh, didn't do well in school, uh, in education. And his reason uh, was that their parents didn't care, didn't care about education. And I remember I was in a class of about 35, 40 students, and uh, I raised my hand and I, and I, and I told the professor, well, that's not true. I, I don't agree with you. And so that was one of my early acts of resistance in a, in a classroom as a, as a student. Um, his response was that, well, what evidence do you have? Which is probably a good response from this professor and I said well and I thought about it I said well my family my mom and dad and so he he said well okay an N of two a sample of two uh, can, can you give me more evidence and I thought at the time he meant add examples so I started naming my friends and I started naming uh, their, their parents and their families and he stopped me he said no he said that basically that that um, that no matter how many times you tell me what you're about to tell me, he says, you're not going to challenge 
the, the, the frameworks uh, that have been developed over, over decades, if not centuries, about why poor people, why in this case minority folks, uh, don't do well in school. And um, at that point, that was a challenge to me. And so my, my career, in many ways, has been a response to that professor. The challenge deficit framing um, the, the, uh, in, in the work that I do as, as, a, as an 18, 19 year old student, uh, probably all the way to the present. I mean, I, I'm still responding to that professor. Uh, I still see him, I still hear him, and I still, um, and I hear many people like him continue to make that claim. Um, so in many ways, that was my, one of my earlier acts of resistance as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate, 18, 19 year old undergraduate uh, at Lyle University. I'll jump in because um, Danny mentioned that he was a um, business major when he first started. I actually went through my entire undergraduate in a business program and graduated in business. And I didn't find a lot of um, spaces, a lot of moments, a lot of pockets for resistance in a, in a business program. And so I think my resistance came afterwards. I graduated in May. Um, and um, the summer before I started working at a community-based organization, I grew up in Kansas City. Um, it was the, it's the, um, one of the oldest um, continually running not-for-profits in the country, Guadalupe Center Incorporated. I started working there the summer before my senior year, and I began to learn from um, community members, from parents, from activists, um, what resistance could look like. And it looked really different in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I think I realized it was almost senior year, I was gonna graduate like to change my major to something else um, didn't make sense. But I think one of those first acts of resistance was I decided I was interviewing for, um, at the time, IBM, Procter and Gamble, Gamble, Hallmark Cards, which is headquartered in Kansas City. And I realized that's not what I wanted to do. I had gone through four years in a program where um, I had heard those kinds of comments, but felt like I wasn't, I didn't have spaces to resist. And so I ended up um, graduating and I started to work for this community-based organization. And in that space is where I resisted the kind of schooling I'd had, um, the major that I'd taken on, the idea that I wouldn't um, take the kind of job that I had been four years and gone to school with and what I would do is I would learn from community members from community organizers from parents and really from students even in that community um, so it was a resistance in what I did but it was um, inspired by um, those that I was working with and that that early um, job right after my undergraduate has always um, um, taught me and, and had a connection to what I've done. Um, so I'll just jump in. Um, so I think I, I had a different path because I was a political activist long before I was an academic. Um, <laughs> I sort of went back to academia um, when I couldn't figure out um, path forward. So um, my own history was more involved in working in, in anti-imperialist movements and anti-racist movements and I was a labor organizer, etc. Um, and um, so when I was thinking about how to answer this question, I was actually thinking more about the more current moment. And I think that one of the recently one of the most Im important experiences that I think I had, but I would say collectively we had um, in, in actually two in Chicago. Um, one was the 2012 Chicago teacher strike. And, um, and I point to that because um, what was significant about that was that it wasn't, it, of course it wasn't an ordinary strike. It was like a carnival of resistance in which parents and students and teachers took over streets, took over neighborhood corners, took over schools, and actually um, 
created, created a space where we could talk about the kinds of schools that our students deserve. So it was, it was a kind of take, it wasn't a resistance. It was more than resistance. It was actually taking for a week, for nine days, it was sort of taking power, taking over the city in a certain kind of way. And I think that um, those experiences are life-changing experiences for many people. And so I think that's a very powerful one. And the other one that I would point to was during the diet hunger strike, which was a strike of, um, a hunger strike by uh, 12 parents and grandparents and community members on the south side of Chicago for a neighborhood school. When um, the Movement for Black Lives was having a rally um, against the police murder of a young African-American woman, and they marched for miles at night from the site of that rally to the site of the diet hunger strike and linked up those movements. Um, that, I think, was another really powerful moment. So. I think of, of these spaces as these spaces of resistance as also as pedagogical spaces that teach us and also teach us how to be different kinds of people. Um, so those are the things that stick in my mind most recently that I've been involved in. Thank you all very much, everyone. Today, of course, is the um, celebration and memory of the legacy and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So that's how we begin the week. And of course, we will end the week with the inauguration of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States. Do you find hope in your work right now? And how do you and where do you find hope? You know, I think for me, one of the main places, I do find hope. I do find hope. Um, let me start with that. Um, there was an article in the LA Times in mid-December, and it was basically about those of us who didn't, um, who were uh, uh, disappointed when the, the with the election turnout, um, but how so many of us have become um, depressed. Um, there's despair. Uh, I think I haven't been in that sense, because I think where I have found hope um, and very much what Pauline was saying is the activism that I see. And for me, I think specifically from youth, from students, um, and even more specifically in that community that um, Danny mentioned is undocumented students, undocumented community members who there really isn't time to be depressed and, and be um, swallowed in despair. Um, I worry about those kinds of folks because there's so much to do. And so I feel like I do find hope. And um, those kinds of examples where young people are showing us how to continue to engage in resistance. And I think one thing for me is to see those examples in all kinds of places. So whether it is the um, marches and the hunger strikes that are so important and so um, um, uh, uh, they are those pedagogical moments we learn from, or whether it is um, um, parent crits, those parents who are um, critically teaching um, their children about injustice, whether it's the teacher in a classroom who is working towards social justice, whether it is in um, conversations. I mean, there's so many ways, I guess, to resist. Um, and I, I find hope when I see those kind of transformative ruptures, those moments of, of, of challenging racism, inequities, coloniality, um, those, whether it's moments or, in, or small spaces or something that's much more um, um, overt, like a, a march, those give me hope that people aren't, most people aren't so depressed and, and with so much despair that they're inactive. It's still moving forward. Yeah, can I um, can I piggyback on that? I I really agree, um, and um, I I'm continually inspired by and um, and actually feel very humbled by um, the the parents and grandparents. Um, you know, in Chicago where I work and live, um, who. Um, despite, you know, 157 schools being closed, <laughs> um, turned around or phased out, most in black communities, 
um, that are continuing to um, organize and fight for their children and and unite with other parents and, and grandparents and students. Um, so that's sort of like that that generational piece. And there's a there's a persistence and a solidity and a a dignity to it that um, um, it cannot be easily turned around. So that's that's one for me, one real inspiration. And but also the young people and uh, my undergrads. Um, who are so open and critical and um, and committed, actually. Who They're um, mostly working class students, um, mostly students of color who want to be teachers. And, and what I've seen a lot um, since Trump's election and, and what I saw in my class when we sort of circled around and talked about how everyone was feeling about it is a lot of solidarities between um, um, undocumented um, uh, Latino students and Muslim students and African American students um, in particular. Um, and that's a really hopeful sign um, that, there, that there's an understanding that we're sort of, that people need to defend each other and, uh, and see the connections between each other's lives and um, and the threats that we're facing right now. So that's to me really hopeful and a lot to learn from. I'll, I'll step in. I, uh, I, I live in a community about 19 miles from UCLA, it's Alhambra, California. It's just east of downtown Los Angeles. And um, I, I drive uh, not all the way to UCLA on the streets, but I, I drive through two communities, three communities on my way to, to the freeway uh, uh, to continue my drive to UCLA. I drive through a community called El Sedeno. It's a Northeast Los Angeles uh, community where I spent my adolescent years. That's right, that's right. I grew up in that community. And if I go a little further, uh, I, I, I go into another community called Lincoln Heights. That's where I actually was born and raised in Lincoln Heights. Um, and then I, I, when I, when I, right when I catch the freeway by Dodger Stadium, I pass my high school. And I get on, get on the freeway and I head, my, head, head out to UCLA. So just about every time I, 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 I traveled to UCLA, I traveled through communities I grew up in. I traveled through mostly Latino working class communities, which have been more and more Latino and Asian American uh, working class communities. And I see hope on the streets that I drive through. Uh, I, I see hopes of the students as they walk to school, their parents as they walk them to school, their parents as they, as they, as they uh, uh, work in those communities, shop in those communities. Um, and so that's where I see hope. I see hope every day when I, as I drive through the community I grew up in. Uh, when I get to UCLA, like Paula, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed with some amazing uh, students although mostly graduate students, uh, but I, I, I also work with undergraduate students as well. And just the, um, they, they, they also give me hope. Because as much as I want to think that this is new and unique, this, this, this Trump phenomenon, um, I think I've been around long enough to know that this is, we're, we're, we're coming back to something we've been here before. In some ways it hasn't changed that much. It's just a different character. It, 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 it is a, uh, it's, uh, is reflected in this, and it's Donald Trump. So I, I, I'm, I've been down this road before, and I've seen uh, comments like 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 Trumps uh, and Trump supporters. And so, uh, but my hope it comes from the communities that I that I've lived in, that I work in, that I drive through every day, in my in my students, my graduate students, my undergraduate students. Um, that that that's where my hope comes from. Comes from. Thank you again, everyone. I'm going to ask one more of our um, scripted questions, and then we're going to invite questions from our audience. Uh, you may be in here uh, in Zoom with us right now, and you can use the chat box, or you may be out there virtually. If you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag DivGChat, and we can follow your questions and ask them to our guests. So final question from, uh, from us, um, graduate students in DivG. 
What does it mean to think about resistance as successful or effective? Thinking about theories of change and thinking about how we judge resistance um, right now in the United States under a President Trump. What does it mean to think about resistance as successful or effective? I'm, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but um, um, as a junior scholar, I had the privilege of writing an article with uh, Danny on transformational resistance. And a long time ago, this was uh, 17, 18 years ago, I think. But in that piece, um, what, what his uh, was helpful for me at the time and has always stuck with me is the idea that there's so many kinds of resistance. And so that's why I say I'm repeating myself because I mentioned earlier what I see and what inspires. But I think um, I think it's tough to say what's effective resistance. I, I worry sometimes because I think then we get into um, only certain kinds of resistance will count or um, you have to see a policy outcome um, and it may not always look like that. Um, I think as all three of us talked about some of our inspiration, um, sometimes in resistance, um, the outcome itself, a policy or practice may not change, but those who've been involved in that kind of resistance have very often been changed. So whether it's the mothers in Chicago, um, mothers that I've worked with in Salt Lake City, um, undocumented youth in California throughout the country, right? Um, and specifically, if we think about the undocumented, um, the dreamers, right? That's been a struggle for so long. And so one could say, well, the resistance hasn't been effective because look at, we still don't have, I mean, look where we're at. We don't have um, a path to citizenship for them. I would argue that's not true if we're thinking of uh, that's the only way to measure how effective resistance is. Um, I think again, those transformative ruptures, those moments, um, those spaces that actually challenge coloniality, challenge racism, challenge, challenge inequities are really important because sometimes they um, have a ripple effect that is policy, um, practice, um, and sometimes that ripple effect is within individuals. And what that teacher does and how that impacts that student who impacts their family who, right, it's this ripple. And so um, I think there's lots of kinds of resistance and lots of ways to measure its effectiveness. So there's not one way is what I would, I, I would say. You know, I, I'll add that... Uh... I think history has shown us that resistance work is important. Um, I, what I didn't mention in my first comment was that although I was a, an accounting major in my early years at Loyola University, uh, I eventually found uh, what was then called Mexican-American studies and, uh, or, or, or ethnic studies or African-American studies because it was such a small program at the time at Loyola that I, uh, that I had to take black studies in order to fill out my, 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 my curriculum, my Mexican-American studies curriculum. So in that program, I mean, the African-American studies majors were, and minors and, uh, were taking Mexican-American studies and vice versa. Uh, and so I learned um, uh, stories of resistance, uh, stories of, of, of uh, of uh, uh, resistance to structural and everyday forms of racism, uh, everyday forms of classism, sexism, heteropatriarchy, nativism. I mean, this is what I, I, I think I learned as, as a young student at the time, but I'm still learning, that I'm st it's still a, a part of, of, of who I am and what I do. Um, but it also reminds me how important ethnic studies is. Th this moment just, if I haven't already been reminded, it continues to remind me of the importance of ethnic studies. Uh, and not just ethnic studies in university, but ethnic studies in the K-12 system. In California, uh, we're, we're, I, I think we're moving in, in the right direction in that we're making ethnic studies a requirement for graduation. We will be making ethnic studies a requirement for graduation. And some districts are moving in that direction. But I think, uh, you know, if ethnic studies is a form of resistance, I think then... I, I, I love to talk to high school students about our work, about, our, about my work, and about what they're doing. 
as Dolores mentioned earlier, about some of the important work that's being done by by uh, by students, and not just our graduate students, but I'm looking at some of the really important work, which I think is resistance work that's done by high school students. Um, in, for instance, to 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 challenge gentrification in their community uh, in Boyle Heights, California, for instance, the roles of all high school students to to um, to challenge environmental injustice in their communities with uh, with uh, uh, the Excite battery plant that's been uh, spewing out uh, toxins into their community, and the students are 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 pushing back and challenging, and so. Uh, but I, I think the very act of resistance, I think, uh, su suggests to me or reminds me that it can be effective and, uh, and, it, and it is effective. Uh, but engaging with others in this period, I think, is uh, just as important, uh, just as important, this, this sort of uh, post-Trump election uh, period that we're in. Um, yeah, I think this is a really big question. <laughs> Um, and um, I, I do agree that there are many forms of resistance and, 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 um, and we see them. We see them in teachers who refuse to, you know, refuse to teach a certain unit that they're assigned in a textbook and instead bring in something else to disrupt a dominant narrative about colonialism and racism and imperialism. And, we see it that way. We see it in um, one of my students who um, was on the blue line, the subway, um, riding home from work, um, or I guess home from school, and um, with a friend who wears a hijab. And this is the day after the election. And someone spat in her friend's face. And so she and her friends who were with the friend who suffered this assault um, sort of not only stood up for her, but sort of called out the whole subway car to stand up against that. So we see, I think, a lot of different forms of resistance. Um, and, and I also agree that um, how we measure that is, um, it's not by, there are things that we do need to win. So recently, for example, um, um, Muslim, organizations organized against the, the Muslim registry and got um, Obama to um, roll that back before Trump came in. So that's an, an important gain. So we need, there are things that we actually are fighting for and that we need in the here and now. But I think we have to recognize that we live under a system that um, is fundamentally antithetical to our rights and our needs. And so, as long as we live under a system that's a, a capitalist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, to use those terms, system, um, that those gains can be rolled back at any moment. They're not permanent. Mm -hmm. So I think that what really counts in, in the kind of resistance work that we do is the ways in which in the process we are changed that we develop the kind of critical consciousness and, and sense of solidarity and organization and support that can challenge those deeper systems. Um, Kali Akuno um, recently wrote, a, from the Malcolm X grassroots um, um, movement, wrote a piece that I think is really important that people should read and think about that I've been reading and, and in, the, in the study um, circles that I'm with, with teachers we've been reading and talking about, in which he talks about the need to prepare to be ungovernable and at the same time as a form of resistance and also to build, to build the kinds of cooperative um, economic structures, the kinds of um, what happens in schools that prefigure the kind of you know, schools we want, the kind of society we want. And I think that's also a form of resistance, is, is, is creating spaces where we um, shape the kind of world that we want to have. Uh, well, thank you so much, professors, for uh, just your words of wisdom and just for um, sharing with us uh, your insp inspiring stories about resistance. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move to our Q&A. We have some really good questions that have come in during the uh, conversation. 
Um, so we'll start with Olivia's question. What is the role? Oh, and I'm also, I'm sorry, I'm also going to, uh, like Adam, I'm not going to call a particular professor unless somebody asks the question to a specific professor. So please feel free to go ahead and jump in. Um, so Olivia asks, what is the role of personal narrative or testimonios in research now? <laughs> I, I, I'll start. I, I, I think testimonial or our own story or the, I, I, I think it's always been important and continues to be important and needs to be, um, needs to be supported. Um, and I think for those of us who do work in critical race theory and other critical uh, traditions, I mean, the, the lived experiences of people, um, uh, of, of people of color, of people uh, of women, of, uh, of others who've been marginalized. It's extremely important. And I think that, um, and I say that knowing that if Olivia is a doctoral student, uh, what you need also is that you need uh, uh, a group of colleagues, it, hopefully that includes your faculty colleagues, uh, to support this kind of work, to support narrative work, to, to support testimonial work. Because I, I, you know, in, in a couple of months, I'll be going to, many of us will be going to AERA, um, and then I'll head off over to this issue, I'll probably be going to the National Association of Chicano and Chicano Studies, the Knox meetings. Then after that, I'll be going to the Critical Race Studies and Education Association meetings. And in those meetings, I'll be, I'll be meeting with students who don't have that support, who aren't supported by their faculty, who aren't supported by other students, who are really lone wolves, they're out there by themselves doing this work. So they come to conferences like that, and they meet up with people like Dolores or Pauline, and they basically try to um, it, it, get, get our support for the kind of work they're doing. So um, I, I think we we have to support them wherever wherever we find them, but but you know again encourage them to do this work because um, one's personal narrative, one's personal story, as Adam you started us with, I think is absolutely critical for the development of a field. And in this particular case, the work I do is in critical race theory, but I'm also in ethnic studies. And I've been in ethnic studies now, as I said earlier, since 1968, 69. So I'm getting close to what's at 40 some years. And so personal narrative is always a part of ethnic studies. Extremely important. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from RL, and it is, I've been thinking a lot lately about interest convergence, though I believe in the crucial need of supporting the growth of pre-service teachers of color across the nation, the majority of teachers across the country are still white middle-class women. How do we begin to bring along the pre-service and in-service teachers to understand the need for racial justice, especially in an era of mass legislative silencing? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll jump into that one because um, that's one that um, I think some of us are really wrestling with. Um, that's definitely true. And, um, and actually, it's getting worse um, as um, we have these federal, um, you know, these various policies that um, impose a lot of testing on pre-service teachers and are actually pushing out um, young people of color who want to be teachers and go back to their communities and teach and don't even get into the teacher pipeline. And Chicago lost, um, Chicago's black teaching force went from 40% of the teaching force in 2000 to 23% today. So this is, uh, this is a crisis. Um, and um, I think that, um, those of us who are white, um, I'm not really a teacher educator, but I do teach <laughs> folks that are gonna be teachers, um, that those of us who are white and are teacher educators, if you will, have a special responsibility to try to do anti-racist work um, with um, white pre-service teachers. I think this is absolutely critical at this moment. Um, and I think we need a lot of guidance also 
from um, faculty of color and students of color um, in order to sort of keep that work on course and true to what it needs to be. But I think this is a major challenge. Um, but that's parallel with that is that we have to fight very hard against policies that aren't just state policies, but you know, decisions that are made by our administrations, by our universities that um, actually squeeze out students of color. And this is a case of, of preparing to be ungovernable, if you will. Like, why do we have to follow some of these policies? Why don't we stay, why don't our um, deans, our department heads, our universities, ourselves, why don't we stand up against these policies and say that they're illegitimate and we're not gonna accept them and we're gonna accept students and we're gonna make sure that they graduate because they are going to be the critical teachers that we need in schools, teachers of color, um, working class students, teachers of color. So um, I think we need to work on parallel tracks. And I just wanna to add to the, um, for the person who asked that question, um, if they aren't already aware of um, some, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of really good, particularly more recent scholarship that's addressing this question. And I just yeah. wanna do a plug, Cheryl Matias does some wonderful work as a um, educator of, uh, a teacher educator of color, but working with white teachers on this anti-racist work. And then I just wanna um, also make sure the, the um, the person who commented knows the work of Rita Coley, who um, does work as a teacher educator of color, but focuses on um, teachers of color, pre-service and in-service teachers of color. Just um, some really good scholarship coming out, and that scholarship really comes from um, both of these scholars' activism. I'll tell a story uh, um, about four years ago, four or five years ago. Um, a high school uh, algebra teacher or math teacher contacted me. Uh, she was teaching, young, young white woman was teaching in um, a school in East Los Angeles, um, Torres, one of the Seven Torres complex schools. And she asked me if I would come to, to meet with her students because she was using that article that Dolores and I had written back in 1998 on resistance. And she was using that, that, that framework that we had developed to teach um, Cartesian algebra. And uh, I know, I, I, I can't speak for Dolores, but when we wrote that article, we weren't thinking about how that framework that we were developing around resistance uh, was going to be used to teach Cartesian algebra. And so I wanted to see what it was like. But here's a, a young woman who, young teacher, who really was engaging these students. Um, and... Uh, was using a framework that's probably not often used in the, in, 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 in the algebra curriculum or pedagogy. And it, I was just blown away, not just by her as an educator, as a teacher, um, but also by her students and how they were coming to know um, things like the X and Y axis and a lot of math that I had long forgotten. But I, I learned so much in watching her teach. Her name was Candace Fuller. And she's now a doctoral student. I, I, have one, I feel uncomfortable about saying this, but I would have loved for her to stay in the classroom and continue the work that she's doing. But I'm certainly really happy that she's at UCLA now um, in the urban schooling division um, uh, doing math education and, and training other young scholars and teachers to do the kind of work that she was doing. But again, it was, it was incumbent upon us, I think, to support uh, her anti-racist work. Um, in the classroom, in an area that I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought about. And so I always have to be open to the ways in which our work can be used by folks um, in the field uh, in ways that I had never thought about it. Great, thank you so much. Um, this next question is from Eric, and it's to Dr. Lipman. Um, in thinking about your piece on regulating Black and Latino youth in the global city, and the context of the upcoming administration with the White House and the Department of Education, where, where we may see more educational policies that are harmful to marginalized communities. What is our role as scholars in resisting these policies and not just analyzing them? Mm. Right. Um, so I think this gets into the question of, um, it's actually a broader question about what is our responsibility as scholars? 
and um, so you know I certainly take inspiration from the work that Dolores has done and that Danny's done that I'm familiar with um, as well um, in that um, I think we need to um, reinforce it particularly at this moment the importance of scholarship that's also activist scholarship scholarships that's in collaboration with in partnership with in the service of um, communities that are actually resisting these things um, and um, and I think for those of us in the in the university who are faculty like ourselves that we have a really important role to play in legitimating that kind of scholarship um, which is not legitimated in the university in general um, but um, I think that that we um, really need to work collectively. We've been trying to do this at UIC. We don't have a lot of um, institutional support, um, but through the Collaborative for Equity and Justice in Education, um, in doing this kind of collaborative research with communities is really driven by um, uh, community agendas in which um, people are struggling ar around particular issues and, and need research as part of that. So as these attacks come down, um, the role of the research is not so much to enlighten policymakers, because we actually don't think the problem is that policymakers aren't enlightened. Many of them are not enlightened, but that's not really the root of the problem. The problem is that um, what they respond to is people who are organized and, um, and are able to exert power against those policies. So um, how can research be part of that process of organizing? So I would encourage um, um, students um, to um, do the, to talk with other students who want to do that kind of work in other faculty and think about um, how folks who are rooted in communities, um, how we can work in partnership with folks who are rooted in communities. And that's really not about the university going as a colonial institution to communities. That can only be done through a process of working together over time and, 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 and building a real relationship um, and real trust um, and, and working responsibly. But if we're in a public institution at this point, um, we have a responsibility as, as um, employees of a public institution to use the resources of that public institution in the service of fighting these policies um, in ways in which um, students and teachers and parents are are fighting and will be fighting those policies you know i'd like to add i think that's really important that the point that pauline was making and just to i guess to sort of repeat myself is that Right now, I mean, I think there's some really important work done by high school teachers. Uh, it's not to say that I, there's, not a, there's not important work being done by middle and elementary school teachers, but the work that I'm familiar with right now is work by some high school teachers um, and how they work with their students and how they work with community activists uh, and how we work with them um, to change policy, as I said earlier, around environmental justice issues in, in, in our local communities, around gentrification issues in our local communities. And I think some of the, some of the most important work right now, I think is being done by, by high, school, our high school teachers um, in, across the US. I, I know in Chicago, I mean, uh, the University of Chicago, uh, University of Illinois Chicago, I mean, you have a, some relationships, and I'm thinking of Dave Stovall's work with local high schools there in, in, in the Chicago area. Um, I'm thinking of people at University of San Francisco, Patrick Kamajian, who does some work with the Oakland Unified School District, along with Jeff Duncan Andrade. Um, but there, there, I mean, and you, Dolores, you mentioned Cheryl Matias. I mean, she's working with, with teachers there in the Denver schools. I mean, there are some really, really important work being done that we should recognize and we should support um, in this area. Can I give a plug? <laughs> Can I, and just to follow up on that, I want to give a plug for um, the, um, in Chicago, Teachers for Social Justice, um, and we've been around for 20 years, and, and have been actually, you know, that is teachers in elementary, middle, and high school teachers who are doing 
um, exactly the kind of work that you're describing um, in schools across Chicago and have been. And actually we have a net, there's a network of, um, of these kinds of teacher organizations in New York, San Francisco, LA, um, Boston, Philadelphia. And so these are teachers who on the ground are not only doing critical um, kinds of pedagogy, but also organizing with students around the real issues that are affecting them in their communities, around issues of environmental justice, around questions of, around immigration, around um, um, the uh, state violence. Um, these are really, um, this is actually a whole cadre of teachers who are teacher organizers, if you will. Um, and so um, I think that that's, that's been a very persistent work that's not just been done by individuals, but that's been done by collectives of teachers across the country. You know, I'll add another example uh, that's happening this Thursday. Um, uh, I guess around the country, certainly in Southern California, there's a number of actions that are going to be taking place this Thursday in the run-up to the inauguration. And I, I sit on the board of the UCLA Community School in uh, Koreatown, and we met last Tuesday. And at that, at our school, at the UCLA Community School, uh, an example of how uh, teachers, parents, uh, students, uh, and activists in the community will, will, are gonna be holding a, 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 an action, uh, not during school, They've chosen to do it before school. So at 7, 7.30 in the morning, they're going to pick it in front of the school, but it's going to be an informational picket. Uh, and it's, it, they have the support of the union, the United Teachers of Los Angeles. They have the support of, of I suppose they have the support of the administration, but certainly they have the support of, of, of activist teachers um, in our school. But the importance is the collaboration between the teachers, the parents, and the students. And... And I don't mean, we're a span school, so we go from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. The, 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 the teachers and, and students and parents are trying to work with young people all the way down to kindergarten to be part of this action next, next, uh, next Thursday morning, or in a couple of days, actually. And so I, 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 I think those, you know, recognizing those, those um, examples of resistance, um, and supporting those examples of resistance. And I know they're happening all over the country uh, this week and hopefully beyond this week, uh, it should, should be supported. Great, thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Um, and I'm gonna cheat a little bit and kind of do one more question, but I'm gonna tack on the last question because um, I'm trying to get through all of them. Um, so, let me see, where is this question? Here we go. Marissa and Michael ask, as established activist scholars, what words of advice, words of warning, or words of self-care can you share for emerging activist scholars? And what are the ways to keep our work sustainable for the long haul? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> Um, I'll just put a few things out there. I don't think there's one answer to that, obviously. Um, a couple of things come to mind in terms of what makes it the, the self-care and the sustainable. Uh, I think one thing is whatever, um, wherever you're at, um, as activist scholars, whatever institution you're at, trying to find um, colleagues, allies to do this work with, because when you're the only one, um, as a graduate student, as a junior faculty member, and even as senior scholars, when you're the only one, it just makes the job so much harder. So if you can look across campus, across departments, um, and uh, across the country, so through these, uh, our different professional organizations, finding colle colleagues and allies who are doing work um, that inspires you and can support you, that's really important. I do think in terms of being sustainable, um, these two scholars, uh, junior scholars, are already thinking on the right track, the, the part about what about self-care? Because that really is important, and it's something I tell my students all the time in their activism that pulls them to the streets. Um, I want them to do that work, but I want them to negotiate. I don't say balance, because I don't know that there's ever a balance, but to negotiate um, those kinds of demands with the demands of graduate school, because they will be able to 
do um, continue to be sustainable um, when they have their degrees, when they finish programs, when they're the teacher educators working with um, teachers um, on anti-racist curriculum. And so finding that negotiation, and sometimes it's putting school aside, and sometimes it's putting the um, in the street kind of politics aside. Um, there's not one answer, but it's negotiating that ongoing because to be sustainable, um, I want um, progressive scholars, um, scholars of color, I want folks who understand that marginalized experience to make their ways, make their voices um, in academia. And so that, that self-care is something to always pay attention to. And it's different for every person, but I'm glad these two who asked the question already have it in their mind. You know, I, I in some ways it's uh, reading, um, historical and contemporary examples of, of resistance, autobiographical and biographical accounts of resistance, um, I, I think are important to the surviving and hopefully thriving in, in, in the academy. So hearing about the voice of others who, who, who are going through this, that you don't think that you're the only one. Um, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago that I think is a really, really important piece of scholarship. It's, about, it's, it's called Presumed Incompetent. And it's really the stories of women of color in the academy and how, and how they experience sexism and racism, homophobia and nativism in, in both in their classrooms, but also in their faculty meetings and other spaces that they find themselves in. But in, in, the, in, these, in these stories are, are examples of healing or examples that, uh, that, that they're sharing with others of how they survived the academy. Um, so the idea of healing, I think, is really, really, really important. You know, last night, Laura and I, my wife, we, we, we watched a movie called Hidden Figures. And um, I think that movie was re really, really important in that it, it talks to us about a story that I can only speak for myself. I had no idea existed. Uh, the story of these three African-American women who, mathematicians, physicists, engineers, who were part of the space program. And I suppose because of how, because who tells a story about space, uh, their, their story was sort of, uh, was forgotten. Maybe more and more than forgotten, it was sort of repressed. Uh, but again, it's an important story about healing and survival. And there, what you see is uh, the family, how the family helped them survive, how their community helped them survive, how their church helped them survive. And what the movie doesn't say, is that these three women were part of a black sorority. Uh, and, I, and, and if you go back and read their story, it's, it's of how the sorority and their sorority sisters helped them survive uh, what they were going through, the racism and sexism uh, that they were experiencing um, in NASA uh, during the 1960s and 70s. And so it's, um, you know, it's important to know these stories for, for not just younger scholars, but I mean, um, scholars like myself have been been in the field for, for some years. Um, I, I would just, um, the only thing that I would add to what's already been said is um, I would underscore what Dolores said about the importance of working collectively. Um, but I, I think the only thing that I would add is that um, um, I, I think I just Maybe I'm struggling through my own experiences, but um, the academy can be um, is a very can be a very corporate, <laughs> neoliberal, toxic space, um, and it's definitely a toxic space for women, for scholars of color, and so finding a space in the academy is um, is challenging, and I think that there is a a, a tremendous press on the part. Um, that the, the culture of the institution exerts on students in particular to conform to the culture of the university, to conform to a culture, maybe I'm just talking about my institution, but um, of silencing, of, of going along with things, of, and so how you negotiate that is really important. And, and so I think um, having a collective, working collectively, um, Students working collectively is one piece. 
I think another piece is that there is a huge responsibility on the part of senior scholars to support, defend, encourage, um, and lift up um, that activist scholarship as actually the kind of scholarship that needs to come from the university and within the university at this point. But I also think that, um, you know, this is about, uh, as you were saying, um, Danny, churches and families and communities that supported um, those women is that, um, at least for me, um, in my own experience and, and the experience of the, the collective of graduate students that I work with um, uh, and doing this work is that we gain a lot of our support and self-care, if you will, not within the university, but outside the university and our relationships outside the university in the relationships that we have in the community, um, in the relationship we have with people who are outside of that institution. So I think we can be in the institution, but not always of the institution. And that we really need to um, see ourselves as really of the community. Um, and as even as we work within the institution. And so that we can sort of walk on two legs, if you will. Um, and, and so that's at least been helpful to me um, in environments that are often extremely unsupportive to say the least of the kind of work that actually needs to be done right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for all that wonderful advice. Um, and I know we're over time, but um, I just, uh, because we've kind of mentioned it throughout and I've been trying to um, put things in the chat box uh, for folks, um, I just want to know what everybody is reading. So if you could just, you know, quickly, yeah. we just go around, what are you reading or what, um, do you have any other recommendations of, um, works and scholarship out there that we should be immersing ourselves in? Uh, one that I always fall back on and learn something new all the time is Gloria Ansaldua. So um, I work with a lot of students um, in different institutions who've turned to Ansaldua, um, scholars in education in particular, but I know in a lot of departments, a lot of colleges, um, Ansaldua is not on a um, syllabus for College of Ed classes. And so in terms of um, how she talks about um, solidarity work, um, uh, how she talks about activism, about interchange, outer change. Um, there's just um, path of consciousness, path of conocimiento. Um, there's so much there. So that's a classic that I um, turn to over and over again. I'm, uh, I'm rereading uh, Derek Bell's Ethical Ambitions. Even though it's uh, out, out of print, I, I, I have a copy. I'm trying to actually. I was trying to get it into my seminar, my critical race seminar this quarter, but it's out of print. But but I'm, I'm rereading that because of to remind us about the ethical issues that we as scholars have to deal with in the everyday. And um, I think Derek Bell's ethical ambitions is a really good sort of. Uh, um, autobiographical account of how he engaged with some of these ethical issues uh, throughout his career as an attorney um, with uh, the NAACP, with his attorney with the, with the federal government, and, now, and then as a law professor in various institutions. And as, as, as a person who's really influenced my work in critical race theory, going back and reading that, and this isn't the first time I've gone back and, re and read it, because often I have to go back and reread things just to find new um, insight for, for, for the work that I'm doing. And I think at this particular point in, in my life and in this particular point in, in the country, uh, I, I think ethical ambitions is a really good, good read. I'm, I'm trying to, to engage with him again with, with this book. And I'm also trying to put together a seminar on Derek Bell uh, for next academic year. Uh, and so I, I, I'm going back and rereading a lot of his early works. Um, I've been reading and reading with my students um, um, a lot of new work. Um, um, Jordan Camp's Incarcerating the Crisis, which I think is a really important book on the relationship between race and capitalism and the coercive state, which I think has much to say about the moment that we're in. Um, Dennis Child's Slaves of the State, which is also provides insights on, on the same um, 
topics. Um, we've been reading Angela Davis, um, Robin D.G. Kelly. Um, we've been reading um, the program of the Movement for Black Lives. Um, um, we're trying to learn more from the Global South. Um, I think there is much to be learned from um, both the scholarship in the Global South and the social movements in the Global South and the writings about the movement, writings from the movements in the Global South. Um, also, um, just some of the recent writing by the um, Youth um, Indigenous Environmental Network um, that is trying to help us think more synergistically about the relationship between these systems and structures of power and um, more indigenous perspectives on the earth and our relationship to the earth, um, not as a um, material possession to be looted. And I think it's very much related to these other systems. So we've been trying to think about how these systems work together um, in this particular moment in order to think more about what kind of work we need to do. Wow. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thanks specifically to our participating scholars, Dr. Delgado Bernal, Dr. Lippmann, and Dr. Solorzano. And thanks to all of you for being with us in conversation as we explore ways to continue to do the work of justice and resistance. We featured one publication from each of our participating scholars on the DivG Graduate Student Committee blog today. We encourage you to visit that space, which is aeradivg.wordpress.com if you'd like to read some of their work. We also want to invite you to continue examining these questions with us on Twitter using hashtag divdchat and by following us at AERADivG. This webinar will be uploaded to our YouTube channel, which is AERADivG Graduate Student Executive Committee, and will be available on iTunes and Overcast as a podcast in the coming days. If you are a graduate student, please take our short uh, Division G annual survey. The link is in the chat box, and we've also posted it on Twitter. It shouldn't really take more than 10 minutes. We look forward to your ideas and insights and to your participation in our next webinar in February. Thanks for your time and for spending the holiday with us. See you next time.